Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Our text today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, and the title of the sermon is Respect. Paul calls the Thessalonians to respect and care for each other. Now, Paul's commands might sound like just really good advice, but this teaching is only possible and only beneficial when the Christian and the church keep focused on the goal of standing blameless before God on the day that Christ returns. It was a fog-shrouded morning, July 4, 1952, when a young woman named Florence Chadwick waded into the water off of Catalina Island. She intended to swim from the channel, uh, swim the channel from the island to the California coast. The distance is 26 miles. Long-distance swimming was not new to her. She had been the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. The water was numbingly cold that day. The fog was so thick that she could hardly see the boats in her party. Several times, sharks had to be driven away with rifle fire. She swam for more than 15 hours before she asked to be taken out of the water. Her trainer tried to encourage her to swim on since they were so close to land, but when Florence looked, all she saw was fog, so she stopped. When she got in the boat and they made their way to shore, they found they were one mile from her goal. Later she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I might have made it. It wasn't the cold or the exhaustion that caused Florence Chadwick to stop short that day. It was fog. And not just fog, it was a fog that prevented her from seeing her goal. Two months later, after that uh, failed attempt, Florence Chadwick walked off the same beach into the same channel and swam the distance. The same fog rolled in while she swam, but she kept fixed in her mind a picture of the shoreline. So even when she couldn't see it, she knew the goal was out there. She kept thinking of it, so she completed the swim. Remembering your goal is important. It can make all the difference between success and failure. Seneca says this, Our plans miscarry because they have no aim. When a man does not know what harbor he's making for, no wind is the right wind. Today's passage of scripture talks about how Christians should treat each other. The words are nice, but without a clear goal, they become just trite sayings. We're to treat each other with respect, knowing that our goal is that each of us, and as many of us as possible, are to stand blameless before Jesus on the day of his return. Let's read the text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but, ask, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This passage of scripture holds some wonderful advice about how to treat others. But the advice of Paul sounds it sounds pretty straightforward. But these words they sound more like platitudes than powerful life-changing words from God. 
So how do we move from nice thoughts and platitudes to dynamic discipleship? How do we move from the idea of, well, let's be nice to one another to this is a word from God that can be powerfully applied to our lives? And I would start this uh, start you thinking about how to move from platitudes to, to something more powerful with a word about how to read the Bible. We have to remember context. Context is the framework around, the, around an idea or around a word that helps us understand what is meant. If I say the word shell, different people will be thinking of different things. Perhaps when you hear the word shell, you, you think of a seashell or getting a lobster out of its shell, or you're thinking of a shell game. Maybe you misheard me and you're thinking of shelves and what's stored on shelves, like books. You could be thinking of nutshells or shotgun shells or gasoline from a shell station or an eggshell or some other sort of shell. There's a whole lot of, of information that's packed into the word shell. And context unlocks that information. You see, if we were sitting in a Mexican restaurant and the waiter asked you what kind of shell you wanted with your food, you would know right away he's asking if you want crunchy or soft taco shells for, you know, for, your, for your food. Context makes a difference. It helps us see the meaning more clearly. Now, most of us, we open the Bible to hear what God has to say to us, to me. I want to know how to make my life better. I want to know how to heal broken relationships. I, I want to know how to handle my teenager. And it's good to read the Bible for instruction about how to live today. However, in our zeal to seek guidance for our lives, we sometimes separate Bible verses from their context. When this happens, we run the risk of getting the wrong information, or perhaps only part of the truth that we need. We have to ask what the Bible meant to those who first read its words. We should ask ourselves, what ideas surround the Bible verses that we're studying? What, what does Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 11 say? What does Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16 say? Maybe we need to ask ourselves, is there an important theme or problem that needs to be kept in mind when we're reading a particular verse of Scripture or a book of the Bible? And our text today uh, it turns into mere platitudes when we strip the history from the scripture. So I get it. Sometimes context is easier to grasp than others. Uh, a study Bible can help get you some context for a Bible passage you're reading. Uh, a New Testament survey or an Old Testament survey, those are books that are devoted to helping you understand the New Testament and its context, and the Old Testament and its context. Uh, in our case today, we have a letter. That's what First Thessalonians is. It's a letter written from one person to, in this case, a group of people. And Paul's the writer who is sending this letter. And the recipients are the Christians who live in the city of Thessalonica. So it would help us to understand well, what's the situation that Paul's writing about. What's he have in his mind? And as we've mentioned several times now, the Thessalonians are a group of Christians, a church that is under pressure and persecution. The non-Christian population of Thessalonica is trying to push these new Christians back into their pre-Christian pagan life. Their attempts have been made to shut down the church, uh, and it's it's resulted in arrests. Uh, there's been mob attacks. Paul, Paul even had to flee the city of Thessalonica for his very life. So this pressure is the context that we need to remember as we read these verses today. 
when Paul reminds the church to respect its leaders, to be patient with everyone, he has in mind promoting unity and church health, community health, when pressure and persecution might disrupt unity and church health. When survival is in question, it can be very difficult to stay unified and focused. Dire situations can make us second-guess our leaders and lose patience with stragglers. Almost every sporting championship you can think of, it's followed by those who question the coach of the losing team. Usually it's because it was their team and they're like, what happened there? And they're kind of going, why didn't the coach put in this player at the end? That, that final play would have turned out differently if they used this player. They, 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 there's all this second-guessing because they feel they've lost something. When the pressure's high, we tend to second guess. We tend to start going our own way instead of thinking about the goal for the team, the unit, the whole group, the church. The higher the pressure, the more people will want to voice their ideas on how to move forward. And 2020 has certainly revealed this. I got to say, and you need to know, there are a lot of good pastors and there's a lot of good elders that are being put through the ringer right now for no other reason than the pressure is high to make right decisions. We're in a situation that's hard to know what to do in churches right now because of coronavirus. The right decision is unclear. Sometimes a good decision can be made, but we're not sure it's the right decision. I want to thank you, the congregation of Valley View, you have been so patient and so respectful of your pastor and your elder board as we've had to, to make some tough decisions this year about how we worship and, and the way we conduct our worship services. Your patience has been a gift to us. Thank you for that. It's made moving forward as a church uh, much easier and it's, it's pro produced some good fruit in our congregation. So yeah, pressure and persecution is part of the context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. But we also need to remember the goal of the Thessalonians and the goal of every Christian. When we forget the true goal, we might stop, sharp, stop short of the goal. Remember the, the woman swimming in the channel between Catalina and California. She, she knew the goal to get to the shoreline, but she couldn't see it anymore, so she stopped. And if we forget our true goal as Christians, we might stop short. We might start working on our own side projects. We might start raising up priorities that we think are good, but they are steering us away from the goal. So what is the goal of the Christian? I want you to take a moment and think about this. Think to yourself, what's the goal of a Christian? What are you aiming at? I think a lot of goals can be expressed to live a holy life to be a good person here on earth, to, to be the best possible version of ourselves, to be saved, certainly. Some would say, well, I, I'm avoiding the punishment of hell. Others would say, I'm trying to get into heaven. Others say, I, I like this eternal life idea. How am I going to get that? That's my goal. And Paul here in Thessalonians has a specific goal in mind, and it shapes the words he writes about how to treat one another. Twice in 1 Thessalonians, Paul states the goal of the church. I'm going to read them to you. The first one's going to be a little fuzzy, and the second one will clarify it a little bit. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, you read this, and I realize I'm pulling it a little bit out of context, but it's the goal that is the context for how the church conducts itself. So 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says this, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God, 
before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So there's an establishing of our hearts blameless before God at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.23 says this again, and maybe a little more clearly. It says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's this idea in Thessalonians that the goal of the Christian is to make it to the day of the Lord, that on that day we will stand blameless before Christ. And Paul is encouraging the Christians to conduct themselves in a way that they are worthy of that. Uh, well, not worthy is not the right word, but they are to conduct themselves in a way that they are um, not ashamed, but they are thankful that they can stand blameless before Christ on the day of his return. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 10 says something very similar. It says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Talking about Christ coming back again. The idea of standing blameless before Jesus on the day of his return, that seems to come throughout the scripture in several places. Uh, in the letter of Jude, verses 24 and 25, we read it again. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, the great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Paul is urging the Thessalonians on so that they might reach the goal of standing before Jesus blameless. Now you might feel like, well, that's impossible. How can we stand before Jesus blameless? But this goal puts a whole new spin on Paul's instructions. The way we treat others has an impact on how we stand before Christ. And so we are to keep that goal in mind when we interact with others. Now, can we make ourselves blameless? No. Only Jesus can wash away our sins and make us white as snow. But now, as Christians, redeemed by Jesus, we are aimed at the day on which we will stand before Jesus blameless. So, Paul is saying, let's act accordingly. You're going to stand before Jesus blameless on the day he returns. If you're a Christian, that's going to happen. So, Paul says, now act like it. So, Paul lists several types of people that you might run into in the church. And each of us, when we run into these people, we run the risk of losing sight of the goal when we get frustrated with this type of person. Whether they are leaders, or they're called the idle, or the faint-hearted, or the weak, when we run into them, our own priorities and goals can step in the way of God's plan. His plan being that we stand blameless before Christ on the day of the Lord. So let's talk about that first group, respect for church leaders. Again, we must remember context when it comes to how we think of our leaders. Uh, we live in a time when we hear the word leader and your response, our response, can be very different depending on where we are or who we're talking about or who those leaders serve. First of all, Paul is not talking about a national uh, leader or a local government leader, but church leaders. He does not use the word pastor or elder, but he certainly has elders and pastors in mind. Secondly, uh, Paul does not say, respect your leaders no matter what. It's not blind allegiance or respect that he's asking for, but instead, Paul lays out a few qualities that these leaders are to possess, and if they meet these qualities, then they are worthy of the church's respect. 
And he says that the qualities are that they labor hard, they work hard among you, uh, they're, they're to be over you by the Lord's authority and not their own uh, personal authority or ambition, and that these leaders are to admonish you, that is, offer a word of correction to get you focused and back on the goal of standing blameless before Christ on the day of his return. So they're to, these leaders work hard, they um, are under the Lord's authority, and they admonish you, they keep you focused on the goal. And when we think of these qualities, we ought to keep in mind a verse like Hebrews 13, 17 that says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the chief goal of a church leader is to guide the members, to guide the Christians in their walk with Jesus. If your leaders are humble, if they're led by the Holy Spirit, if they're focused on guiding you to the strongest possible relationship with Jesus, a certain amount of respect should be given to them. This is especially true if they're making a decision you don't agree with. You can check the decision, you can kind of talk to them about it, but if they're working hard to help people see Jesus, that means that they're not trying to be your enemy, they're not trying to make you mad, they're, they're trying to help everybody get to Jesus. You know, our culture is one of democracy, individualism, and capitalism. These values are ingrained in us, and we run the risk of elevating our personal preferences over the plans of God. Anyone can do this. We've got to be careful of this, including our leaders. And so we must guard against this. You know, our culture is very business-based. G.K. Beale warns this, that we can start to see pastors and church leaders as CEOs of a church operation whose purpose is to meet our needs. Oh, that statement should bother you. If you think the church's job is to meet your needs, if you think the pastor's job is to meet your needs, mm, we got to work on this a little bit. The purpose of the church is to glorify God and to carry out God's mission of making disciples of all nations. Sometimes a church leader has to make a decision that is counter to the catchphrase of our society, the customer's always right. God is the one who's always right. And if your leaders are humble and Holy Spirit-driven and God-fearing, when they make a decision you don't agree with, at least remember they're trying to aim us all at heaven. Give them some respect to benefit of the doubt. Another category of person that Paul talks about is, uh, he says, admonish the idol. I suspect most of us hear the word idol and we think of a lazy person or someone who is unwilling to work. And this would not be accurate. The Greek word here is ataktos, uh, which means a person who is not remaining in their place. They're out of order. They're undisciplined. They're disorderly. They're disruptive. Uh, the two biggest ideas that you can attach to the word ataktos is this. Uh, first, a person uh, who is distracted by the wrong priorities. Uh, and secondly, a person who is so disorganized that they are unable to move forward, uh, especially in this case, in relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, so the idol, please remember, when we read that word idol, it can actually refer to a person who works really, really hard. They're very busy. They're just very busy with the wrong things. This idea is captured by the phrase, the little phrase that you might have heard before that says, uh, the phrase is, rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic while the ship goes down. 
what a phrase that is. Rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic while the ship goes down. I, I think a lot of us might be guilting, uh, guilty of doing that. We're, we're busy making this little area look nice. Now, let's, let's put the furniture here and... and it, it doesn't matter. The ship's going down. The goal now is to help as many people as possible to live. And I think a lot of us are doing things that are not the goal. Now I want to insert the word admonishing back into the phrase admonishing the idol. When you put admonishing back in, it means to get them back on course. Get them refocused on the goal. This is often easier said than done especially when we feel like our priorities and our wants are very important and critical. I mean, we often think our own little pet project is really important. But we got to remember the goal of the church, the goal of the Christian. We are aiming at the day that we can stand blameless before Christ when he returns. That's what we're aiming at. And so our decisions should be according to that goal. Paul also talks about encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak. Uh, encouraging the small of soul. That's the faint-hearted there. Uh, you could think of somebody who is timid and they need a lift. They need to just uh, a little bit of somebody to come alongside and say, you have got this. Don't stop following Jesus. Don't stop aiming at the goal. Keep going. You're strong enough. You know, caring for the weak is saying that as Christians, we take an extra measure to help those in need within the church. Again, context helps us understand these commands. Why do we help the weak? Why do we encourage faint-hearted? Think about that for a moment. So I think a lot of people would say, well, I, I help the weak, I help the faint-hearted because it's the right thing to do. I think some people say, well, it, it's, it's, it's a just thing to do. It, it's good. Why wouldn't you want to help those in need? But here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is talking about how Christians treat each other because when under pressure, it can be easy to cry, every person for themselves. But in the moment of pressure and persecution, in the moment of survival, success is found when we help carry each other toward the goal. And I've already mentioned the goal, and I'll say it a few times more. The goal is standing blameless before Christ on the day of his return. Meaning, the goal is making it to the finish line. That we get to see Jesus and enter into heaven. We help the faint-hearted because we want them there before Christ. We help the weak because we want them there before Christ. We admonish the disorganized and the disruptive, the idle, because we want them to stand before Christ. Helping someone is a kind thing to do. It can be life-changing. It can make you feel good, but each decision to help must have the greater focus of crossing the finish line and standing before Jesus. Do you act in the name of earthly kindness or do you act in the name of Christ? Those two things are not always the same. And I think a lot of people today act in the name of earthly kindness instead of the name of Jesus. Which one are you serving? Now, Paul follows his instructions about these types of people with three quick instructions on how to conduct yourself towards uh, these groups of people or anybody else in the church. And he says, be patient with all of them. The higher the stress or the higher the stakes, the more we're going to need patience. Do not repay evil with evil. You know, revenge is the instinct of the sin nature, but we're told to resist it. And then he says, seek to do good 
seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Our world loves the idea of doing good. But our world is unsure of what good actually is, or why we're to do good. Right now, the reason our world wants to do good, it appears to be this. Do good so that people feel good about who they are, and they're able to self-actualize themselves, realize who they are. But this is not the goal of the Christian. But we're under constant temptation to think that we should help people feel good about themselves. And I, yeah, we do want people to feel good about themselves, but the goal is to stand before Christ blameless and to get as many people as possible to join you there. I like Eugene Peterson's take on this section of to seek to do good for one another. He says this, Look for the best in each other and do your best to bring it out. And again, bringing out the best in each other only makes sense in the context and with the goal of standing blameless before Christ. We're to bring out the best in each other to the end, to the goal, to getting across the finish line and standing before Jesus. Be aware of trading away this goal, even for good or admirable endeavors. There's a story I, I like, I know I've used it before, about a lighthouse. Uh, and it goes like this. A lighthouse was along a, a bleak coastline. It was tended by a keeper who was given enough oil for one month to keep the light burning every night. One day a woman asked for some oil so that she and her children could stay warm. And then a farmer came. His son needed oil for a lamp so he could read. Still another, some oil for an engine. And the keeper saw each as a worthy request and he measured out just enough oil to satisfy all. Near the end of the month, the tank in the lighthouse ran dry. That night, the beacon was dark, and three ships crashed onto the rocks. More than a hundred people lost their lives. When a government official, official investigated, the man explained what he had done and why. And the, the official insisted this. He said, you were given one task alone. It was to keep the light burning. Everything else was secondary. There is no defense for what you've done. So we are to seek to bring out the best in everyone, to do good, to, to be patient. But it is all with one goal in mind. Standing blameless before Christ on the day of his return. As we enter into the season of Advent, it would do us some good to remember our goal and our priority as Christians. One of the themes of Advent is preparing ourselves for the eternal reign of Christ, his coming back. We should not just read this passage of Scripture and think, ah, we, we are to be nice to each other. But we should ask ourselves, in what are, what are the ways that I am living that prepares me to stand before Jesus blameless? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help each of us to live well for you. That the ways that we would live would unify the body of Christ and would bring as many people as possible into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, show us if we are the idle ones focusing on the wrong priorities. I don't want to be that person. Help us to conduct ourselves in a way that makes other Christians better, stronger in faith, and more obedient to your Lordship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.